0: Father, thank you for your kindness to us and the Lord, your Son, and we thank you for allowing us to come together this morning and begin to take a look at the book of Colossians. It's a treasure, Lord, in your word, and we thank you for giving it to us. So bless us this morning, and I pray that you'll give clarity to the teacher and for those who are here to listen, that you'll open their hearts and minds as well. And if we walk away this this morning, Lord, having encountered your word, we know it will be because of your kindness to us, and because of the work of your Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. All right, come on in. Um, you know, I, I teach the, uh, the Old Testament primarily. That's my world. Um, I, I, I tease my students sometimes, you know, that the New Testament makes a nice appendix, you know, to, the, to that main book. Um, Laughter which I don't really believe that. Uh, I I I do like the New Testament very much. You know, it's in the Bible for a reason. Um, and so one of the, one of the one of the things I'm grateful for about what I get to do here at Advent is it allows me to push into territory that really in my sort of normal day job I don't get to do. Um, and so teaching New Testament and delving into that is is a real treat for me. Um, Just so that you know kind of how I have my own, and I'm I'm not sure it will always work out this way, but the way in which I think about the teaching rhythm here at Advent that I will sort of enter into, the way in which I'll probably try to conceive of it is, you know, if I do something in the fall, it'll be Old Testament. If I do something in the spring, it'll be New Testament. And then if we do something in, in summer... Um, it'll probably be something in Christian theology proper. So that's the way in which I sort of conceive of this in my own in my own mind. Whether or not that will work out that way, we will see. And you can hold me accountable to that. Um, but that's that's at least the way in which I conceive it. Now, once upon a time, I did do I did spend a lot of time with Paul, um, the Apostle Paul, and I I think I was telling my wife this last night on the couch a little late. I do think that the book of Colossians, if I were pushed into a corner and someone were to ask me, tell me one of your favorite Pauline epistles, I'd have to say Colossians would rank really, really high, um, if not right at the top. I mean, of course, Romans. I mean, who could, you know, but Romans is a juggernaut, is it not? I mean, Romans is, to my mind, at the beginning of the Pauline collection of letters. Think about the way in which the New Testament canon is set up, Right. You have the fourfold gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you have the book of Acts, and then you move into the Pauline collection, which begins with Romans. Now, one of the things that you may be familiar with within New Testament scholarship is it's really par for the course to talk about Luke and Acts together. Right, Um, So you'll hear, I hear this often ad nauseum, Luke-Acts, Luke-Acts, as if it's a single book or a two-volume book. And the truth of the matter is that's probably the right way to understand the genesis or the beginning of the composition of both Luke and Acts. Luke wrote volume one and then he wrote volume two in, in the book of Acts. And you can see a lot of overlap thematically between Luke and Acts. But here's what I think is fascinating. There is no, I'll just kind of I'll say that emphatically, there is no attestation in early canonical orderings of the early church, third century and on, that have any understanding of a Luke Acts. There's just not, it's not there. Luke has been positioned in the fourfold gospel Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you know, the, the history of the canon of the New Testament is a complex and fascinating subject matter in and of itself. But um, the truth of the matter is, uh, at least the fourfold gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, began to travel together rather early. Matter of fact, I had a professor back in the day who wrote his dissertation arguing that the codex, the codices, which you know this term, it's books. So we move from scrolls, you know, the long scrolls, to book form, where we actually have now a binding where something's brought together in more book page format. The argument that he made was that the actual beginning of the codex, or the codices, was for the sake of holding together the fourfold gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so isn't that, isn't that the beginning of our, what we think of now as books, as we have them, quite possibly historically had its, its immediate cause, the ability to bring Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together to travel together, acts functions as a bridge that then moves us into the Pauline collection, and then we move into the Pauline collection with Romans at the head. Now, I don't know if I'd go to the guillotine over this, but I feel pretty strongly about it, that um, Romans is at the head for a reason. It's at the head because it really establishes Paul's theological world. It functions as a guide, I believe, for the way in which we read the rest of the Pauline collection, Romans all the way to, oh, where does it end? Is it Philemon, right? Is that the last one? Titus, Philemon. Yes, Philemon. So that you have that 13-letter collection of Paul, beginning with the book of Romans, and it establishes something theologically. So I like Romans a lot. I mean, Romans is a big mountain, though. Who's done a Bible study in Romans? And who made it all the way through? Oh! <laughs> three times. Yeah, three times. Wow, that's very impressive. I mean, you get to like, the Romans 9, 10, and 11. I think that's about as complicated as it gets in the Bible. You know, it's like Romans 9, you know, I'd give myself for my own, um, you know, the, the big problem of election, then you get in Romans 10, God's calling is without revocation, then you get into Romans 11, I mean, grafting in, then you get into Romans 11, and then by the end of it, I'm rather confused, actually. <laughs> and, here, Paul, and you know how Paul ends Romans 9, 10, and 11? I love this about Paul. Um, he ends it by pulling out his hymnal. I, I, I love that. Um, when we get so frustrated, what we think of as frustrating theological realities—election, predestination, Israel, and the and the nations—these are just complex theological matters. Paul says, "Isn't that wonderful? Let's sing about it, right?" That's, that's, <laughs> it's not a bad. It's not actually a bad approach to complicated theological matters. Let. Let our theology lead into doxology. Um, My two boys, who were quite chatty today in church, I'm a little miffed about it even in the moment. Um, One of them leaned over to me, who's got questions on top of his questions, and asked me, do we sing the doxology every Sunday? Do you sing it every Sunday? And I said, yeah, in some context or another, we probably sing the doxology every Sunday. Every Sunday, um, that's right. Right, our theology, our confession, what we say we believe, leads us into into praise and to singing. We're going to come back to that. So I have a high regard for 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 Romans, now, but there's something about Colossians. Colossians is tight, right? I mean, when you go into Romans, it's like you feel you've entered into the Himalaya Mountains. When you get into Colossians, I mean, Colossians is t- it's a rifle shot from Paul. It's probably written when Paul was in prison, and the arguments uh, vary on what prison Paul was actually in. Some uh, argue vociferously that Paul was in Ephesus, in prison there, which is quite clo- close geographically to Colossae. Matter of fact, again, I wouldn't go to the guillotine for this, but my, my strong instinct at the end of Colossians, do you remember what Paul says at the end of Colossians, by the way, I wrote a letter to the Laodiceans as well. And uh, why don't you get that letter and read it and swap this one over and let them read this one. Now, I think it's quite probable that the Laodiceans were, was the church at Ephesus as well. Um, so what you see here within the Pauline collection, even at the end of Colossians, is an understanding that Paul conceived of his letters as having the ability to do more, more apostolic work, than just the original audience that he wrote the letter to. That is very important. I'm I'm, going to circle back on this. Here Paul is telling us, it's it's what I would call insight into canonical intentionality. That's a big term, right? What do I mean by that? That the intentionality of a book like Colossians or a book like Ephesians has the ability to loose itself from its historical mooring in Colossae or Ephesus and move to other places so as to deliver the apostolic word in that situation too. Um, so, I mean, let's put this in our perspective. It also tells us that we recognize all of Paul's letters are occasional. All of them are. Paul wrote to the church at Rome. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He wrote to the church at Galatia. He wrote to the church at Colossae. It's highly occasional and, there, and it's situation specific. But it's not bound by its historical particularity. It has the ability to move and to speak again and anew into various situations, and that's its canonical or Bible role. That's why we study Colossians together now, because we believe that what Paul had to say apostolically way back there in the first century to this little church, in Asia Minor, has something of significance to continue to say to us now about the gospel, about the Christian life, about the way in which God has ordered his world. So that's quite important. So Paul's writing maybe from Ephesus. More likely, I think he's writing from prison in Rome, but he's writing from prison. And if he's writing from prison in Rome, which I think is probably the case, what you have here is Paul writing... At the theological apex of his career, and this is it, and Paul's about to go down soon here, right? Now, you remember he eventually, at least tradition tells us, was killed under the leadership of Nero, who was not a charming fellow. If you know anything about Nero, so this is what wa- Paul is writing for the end of his life here, and he's writing this letter to the Colossians, and I think what we see here is a mature, rich theological expression from Paul that um, that I've grown fonder and fonder of over the years now. Let me give you an illustration of something that happened in my own life. When I was in seminary, and this is one of the reasons why I like the book of Colossians, when I was in seminary, and I tell my students at Beeson Divinity School, and tell students anywhere, that seminary or theological education, it's not summer camp, right? I mean, it's not the warm and fuzzies always. It's not... Tuesday night, we did kumbaya, and then Wednesday night, we threw some sticks on a fire, and we just sort of huddled together, and man, it was just, it was awesome. And I'm all for that, right? I met my wife in a Christian camp, so I'm for it, right? I believe in it. Good things can happen there. Now, bad things too, by the way, but good things can happen. At the camp my wife and I worked at, it was a fundamentalist Christian camp, and and um, so, you know, they had all these rules. And they were very winsome in how they gave the rules. One of them was, you know, you can't smoke, and, and you can't make out with girls. And, and, and if you do, we'll have to send you home. And so what they said, though, if we catch you smoking and making out at the same time, like, we'll have to send you home and bring you back and then send you home again. That's what I have to do. <laughs> um, so I tell my students that, that uh, seminary is not, is not uh, summer camp. It's boot camp. Right? It's, there are difficult things that one encounters. Some of you have taken courses like this and you know what I'm talking about. You begin to encounter some complex things about the nature of the Bible. Um, I mean, you realize things like the New Testament canon that we work from, that all of our translations that we work from now. Um, come from a composite Greek text. It's not one single text, it's a composite thing that's a, scho- a product of hard scholarly work. It's not just there, it had to kind of get there. Um, I mean, the, the Hebrew canon that we work from, that all of our Old Testament translations are based off, off of, um, is around 1000 A.D. A.D. Did you hear that? Right. So, I mean, it's, when I tell students that for the first time, they're like, what? Right, the text that our Old Testament is based off of is from 1000 A.D. Right? Now, a lot goes into that conversation, but the point is, these kinds of things can create hurdles. They did for me. Right? I mean, I came with a very brittle understanding of the nature of the Bible. I began to encounter these things in seminary, and I, I, my world began to spin. And I remember one night it got particularly bad for me, and I emailed one of my profs. Um, which was one of the moments, frankly, that I realized what I wanted to do with my life. But I emailed one of my profs, and um, it was in the afternoon, and I said, a long email, and I said, I'm, I'm dying. I mean, I'm I, I, don't, I'm feeling an enormous amount of cognitive dissonance, and I have no cognitive rest right now at all. I'm, I'm not on the far side of complexity to simplicity, and I, I, I can't make heads or tails of this. And he emailed me back, and he said, I'm at a conference right now but can you call me tonight at 11? <laughs> All right. And uh, I said, yeah. And I called him at 11. We talked till about 1 on the phone. And one of the things I will never forget that he told me, his name was Richard Pratt, actually. He was just at Beeson. Richard told me, he said, you know what, Mark? He said, I can't try to take away from you the complexity that you're engaging because it's there. It's there. But can I encourage you in the middle of this to make sure that you make a commitment on the front end that no matter what, you're not going to let go of Jesus. right? No matter what, you're not going to let go of Jesus. And recognizing as well that he's not going to let go of you. Boy, that was a huge moment for me. And it's one of the reasons why I love this book. Because this book gives us a view And a picture of Jesus that tells us, that shouts to us, Jesus is enough. He's enough. He is supreme over all the world. Matter of fact, we're going to see next week, not today, that he actually is the agent of creation himself. He's supreme over it all. The world would not exist without his sustaining power. Atoms would begin to fly apart. I believe this theologically atoms would begin to fly apart and the world would turn in on itself implosively if it weren't for the sustaining power of the word of Jesus Christ. Right? When the sun comes up tomorrow. I know it's going to come up tomorrow so do you. But Jesus did that. He did that again. That's the kind of view of Jesus that we're going to get in the book of Colossians and the, fo- the follow up on that is and he is enough for you. He's sufficient For you. Because the world is going to come at you again and again with all of its glitz and its glamour. With all of the wisdom that the world has to offer. And there is an enormous amount of wisdom in the world. I'm quite taken, frankly, with reading the philosophical thought of of continental Europe in the 19th and the 20th century. I think it's fascinating, right? There's a lot of wisdom that comes from the philosophies of the world. And here Paul reminds us it's all going to come to you, but remember Jesus is enough. He's the guiding principle of it all. So we're doing this for four weeks and uh, we're going to get to verse, Lord willing, uh, 14 today, right? Um, So what that probably means is I doubt we'll get out of chapter 2. But who knows? You know, well, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I kind of get bogged down in the details. Um, so, can we press on? Now, uh, I, I realize as I keep forgetting this, and I don't know why I keep forgetting this, but um, if you can, like, get a phone app, if you're going to come for the next few weeks or something, um, so that you can have a Bible to look at, or, or maybe we, if I can remember with Gil, are you hearing this? Um, we can remember uh, Gil turned on the microphone for me. Uh, he, he left me a note. He said, I turned it on at 10 a.m. Every time I've taught in here, I've got it wrong on how to do this. So now they're hell holding my hand for me. Um, or try to get Bibles. Because I really want us to look at the Bible together. I think that's going to be quite important. So either bring Bibles um, or get a phone app. Or I'll ask Gil if we can get a box of them down. You can just go to Bible on, and you can get BibleGateway.com. No, you, yeah, just, you, can that, you can do that. Or you can just surf it. On the internet, you can go to- BibleGateway.com. I think the ESV has a free app. It's actually a nice layout, too, if if you carry such things. All right, can can we hop in here? Oh, goodness. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Grace and peace. That is Paul's normal mode of communication. Grace and peace to you. Grace, which leads to shalom right that's paul's jewish right shalom the well-being and the human flourishing that only come from the grace of god it's a great way to greet people grace to you and peace shalom from god our father now listen to this prayer from paul and notice two things about paul's prayer number one paul paul gives thanksgiving and number two Paul intercedes. It's a great model for prayer, actually. If you're looking for a model, this is a nice one. It's not the only one. Paul gives thanksgiving, and then Paul intercedes. Listen to what he says. We thank, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. We, we, that is, Paul's probably speaking here on behalf of himself, and maybe Timothy as well. When we pray for you, I thank God for you, always. Paul's prayers had thanksgiving at their core. We thank you, God. We bless you, God. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, Psalm 103, and all that is in me, bless his holy name. There's something about the way in which we worship together liturgically that tells us about the character of God. God is someone who is worthy of being blessed, who is worthy of being honored, who is worthy of being praised. And here when Paul leads with his right foot of prayer, how he leads us with, and you know the term, the Greek term there is, Eucharisteo, Eucharist, with thanksgiving. Every time that I pray, when we pray together, we give thanks for you. Thanksgiving. Giving thanks in the Bible is the opposite of idolatry. Let me say that again, because I think it's very important. Giving thanks in the Bible is the opposite of idolatry. I mean, I see this in my own heart, and I see this... In my children. Um, and I don't always handle it very well, I will admit to you. I wish I was gentle like Jesus, but I'm not always with my kids. Right? One of the things that can set me off is ingratitude. right? Or the sort of entitlement of, well, of course we deserve an ice cream cone. right? We're your kids, of course we deserve that. Anyway, <laughs> we'll just drive on. right? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is at the heart of of the biblical injunction against idolatry. Because idolatry says, as it turns on itself, I can find something within my own resources or my own imagination or my own religious instinct, I can find something that can stand in the place of God. And we are all idolaters underneath our chest. All of us are. That's our inclination. Calvin said it beautifully. We all have idol factories underneath our breasts. All of us. And the, the good news from Paul is, the opposite of that, the antidote to idolatry is thanksgiving. Because what does thanksgiving identify? Thanksgiving shows us, and it shows the Lord in our confession, that all that we have is from you. Think about the offering hymn that we sing. Everything that we have is from you. It's all yours. And the only thing that we can say in return to you is thank you. Thanksgiving. Listen to this quote. This is, I thought this was jarring from Karl Barth. Karl Barth said, Radically and basically, all sin is simply ingratitude. Radically and basically, all sin is simply In In gratitude. The only real answer to grace. The only genuine human response to the grace of God in our lives. Is thanksgiving. Eucharisteo. Praise and gratitude. Be thankful. Here's Paul. Saying that there's no debtor's ethic with God. We don't pay God back. We don't see you gave us grace. Thank you. I'm going to meet you halfway and try to kind of make up. There's no debtor's ethic. The proper human response to the grace of God is simply and straightforwardly and profoundly thanksgiving. Be thankful. Gratitude. Our only response to grace is gratitude. Listen to what we prayed just this morning in the general thanksgiving that we may show forth thy praise not only with our lips but in our lives. Lives and lips that are marked by gratitude. But notice here what Paul is grateful for. <laughs> he's not only grateful for the grace of God in his life, but he's also grateful for the grace of God in others. I thank God, we thank God for you. And we thank God for you all the time. Here we see Paul Offering thanksgiving. Why is he offering thanksgiving? Because of the grace of God that's been shown in the lives of in the lives of others. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about that, but time is pressing us on. So, reading on here, what is Paul thankful for? I'm thankful for these things. Verse 4. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have for all the saints. Because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. Do you hear the triad? It's the classic triad. Faith, hope, and love. Or faith, love, and hope. Now, let's talk about these three real fast, since our time is pressing us. What is faith? Do you ever think about such basic questions, right? I mean, faith... It's, we, it's, we, we, we're a reformational kind of church here. I don't know if you knew that or not, but it is. Right? And uh, so there's you know, there's a lot of, you know, the English reformers get a lot of airtime around here, and positively so. I mean, the battle cry of the Reformation was sola fide, by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Here Paul is leading by giving thanksgiving because he's heard about their faith in Jesus, What is faith, right? Well, faith is grounded primarily in its object. It's not self-reflected. It's not self-reflexive. Faith, by its very nature, moves beyond itself to look at its object. I mean, I was thinking about this. What does it even mean, for example... When we talk about people growing in their faith, that's a biblical idea, by the way, to grow in your faith. What does that mean? I think it has to mean at its core that growing in faith means growing in appreciation and depth and gratitude for the object of our faith. I mean, you think about as you grow in your faith, as you mature, as you enter into these Bible studies that you're a part of, as you think about X, Y, and Z, and you grow and mature over time, what is the maturing having to do with? I think it's having to do primarily with a recognition of our object and the beauty and the glory and the profundity of what it is that we believe. I can't believe this. God stepped into time in His Son, and by the power of the Spirit, he lived his life perfectly for me. And then he took his own judgment on himself and died my death for me so that I could be brought back into fellowship with God. I'm, I'm blown away by that. Right. That's faith. Faith is inherently passive. Did you hear that? I'm going to say that again. It's inherently passive. Faith is not a sort of pulling oneself up by their moral bootstraps. Faith is not reaching low and digging deep inside and finding that, I'm thinking here about 19th century liberal theology, it's not finding that spark inside, right, that might just burn up into a big old flame. It's not that. (laughs) Faith is a recognition that on our own account we are utterly lost. And it looks to the Savior and finds complete solace and refuge in him. Faith is a passive act. This is one of, I think, Martin Luther's great achievements. That faith is not a life of developing love. Faith is not a life of moral agency. Those might all be products, and good ones we're going to see in a second. But at its core, faith is a passive life. It's a recognition that something comes from outside of ourselves and is given to us freely on the goodness and the kindness of the Lord because he loves sinners. And here is another thing. And this might be troubling on some account. But faith is something that God gives to us. You realize that? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Faith is not something that you can muster up on your own. Faith itself is a gift that comes from God outside of ourselves and is given to us so that we can look to the object of our faith and find complete hope and assurance in in him. That's faith. Faith. what about love? What about love? He says he hears about their love for all the saints. No one can and will love God who does not believe. No one can or will love God or their neighbor who does not believe. Faith grounds our love and he makes it possible. Or as Martin Luther famously said, God does not need our good works. That's the reality of our faith. But our neighbors do. Our neighbors do. And so when you think about love that moves out from faith, that that has its genesis and its source in the reality of the gospel itself. Love flows from from faith, which is first. And then what about hope? Hope Hope is confidence and belief in the future. Now, this is one of the ways in which I think Paul loves to play linguistic um, jujitsu. I guess that's the way of putting it. What what does Paul do? I love this about Paul. Paul will take terms that are common to the culture and he will borrow them. I call that borrowed capital. He'll borrow that from the culture. He'll infuse it with apostolic doctrine and kind of flip it on its head. I mean, for example, reconciliation. Paul's the only one in the Bible, in the New Testament, who uses that Catalasso language, reconciliation. Well, in the ancient world, to reconcile means that the offending party reconciles themselves to the one that they offended. So if I've offended Miriam, right, I need to go to her and reconcile myself to her. And Paul says, that's not how the gospel works. It actually flips that on its head. When we were aliens and strangers, God reconciled us to himself. God did that. It's the same with hope. When we think about hope, right, how do we think of hope? I've lost my keys. I hope I can find, find them. Right. I hope the best for my children's future, recognizing it could go a couple ways. I don't know. Right. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is the sure and secured confidence that what God has promised about the future will be. Hope and faith are flip sides of the same reality. To hope is to believe and to believe is to hope. It's our confidence that what God has said will be true. It's a confidence that recognizes that my current experiences are not the sum total of reality. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And because Paul saw these three, faith, love, and hope, operative in the people at Colossae, the church at Colossae, he explodes in praise to God, and thanksgiving to God, because he knows, right, that it's God who's worthy to be given thanks for it. That's where the form of the prayer itself tells us something theologically about Paul's instincts. Paul's instincts are not to say, I give thanks to you, Colossae, for what you're generating over there. No. I give thanks to God because I hear about these things that are going on in your life. There's faith, there's love, and there's hope, which must mean that God, by His Spirit, is doing a work in your midst. So I don't have anyone else to thank but God Himself. That That's telling to us, I think, about the way in which we relate to others in the household of faith. When you see, right? When I see my children... I can't, I'm sorry to use this in my world. But when I see my children... Make the right decision, right? And ground something in faith and live in hope and operate in love toward their brother that one time that it happens, right? (laughs) When I see that, what's the response? The response is, you know, I am a pretty good parent. Or, uh, yes, the technique, the new book that we just read is working itself out quite well as we apply this rigorously. No, it's, God, thank you that you're doing this kind of work in their lives. Thank you that you're doing this work at the Cathedral Church of the Advent. Thank you for what you're doing at this church. Over. Thank you for your work. Because that is a testimony to the fact that you are alive and you are operative by your spirit. Why? Look at what he says here. Oh, I see what's going on. This is it. I'll be done. Why? Why did all this happen? Because of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. So among yourselves from the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Why can Paul say this to them? Why is it happening in their midst? Because the gospel planted itself by the work of God's Spirit in the church at Colossae and what's going on at Colossae is a microcosm of what God is doing throughout the whole world. I use this prayer, we do a, we do a, um, a, a, a prayer of um, a consecration service at Beeson every December and every May for our graduating class. And we stand up as a faculty and we walk It it's quite moving actually, we walk around and we pray individually over every student. Right. It's quite lovely. Um, I've, I've learned that students appreciate breath mints in their profs. I've learned that, um, so I try to accommodate. One of the prayers that I pray regularly for my students is this one right here. Lord, in the ministry of so-and-so, would you not, by your own power and your own grace, let the gospel grow and bear fruit in their life and the life of their family and their ministry throughout the world? It's a belief, isn't it? That the gospel is alive. The religion that we're a part of, right? This thing called Christianity is a dynamic religion. It's a dynamic faith. God is operative in his church. He's working. And what you see happening, say, in the Cathedral Church of the Advent, where the gospel in pockets here and there and throughout the whole place is planting its seed and it's growing and and it's bearing fruit as we look around our communities, what we see here is a microcosm of what God is doing all around the world in Burundi, in Vietnam, in Peru, in a small little church in China. All around the world, the gospel is growing and it's bearing fruit. And it's a testimony to the fact that Jesus is alive and that God's spirit is operative and in that we have hope. That's the grounding of the gospel. That's the good news. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Savior. He is reigning And he is saving. And he's doing it throughout the whole world. And what we get to experience in a little place like Colossae, or a little place like Advent, is a small recognition of what God is doing throughout the whole world. Thank you, Lord, for your work in the gospel. It encourages and strengthens us in our faith. Lord, we want to grow in our faith. Not because we want to look at ourselves and say, wow, I'm prepared now to face the difficulties of life but because we want our eyes to turn away from ourselves and to see the wonder of who you are, Jesus, and what you have done and who you are even now. Lord, would you let the gospel plant its seeds in the hearts of those who are here right now? Mine too, Lord. Would you let it by your mercy grow and bear fruit in our lives and our families' lives and, Lord, around the world? And we are confident, God, that you are doing that.